Welcome to the Fearless Women Podcast. We're inspiring conversations for the unafraid. I'm Janice McDonald, founder of The Beacon Agency, author, and global champion for women. Why am I making this show? Because I want to share the inspiring stories of women leaders in business, arts and culture, politics, and more with all of you. Hear how they've chosen to go forward and be bold and make the world a better place, even when it wasn't easy to do. Subscribe now wherever you find podcasts. Hey, everybody, I'm Janice McDonald. Welcome to the Fearless Women Podcast. Here's one thing I know for sure. We are all in serious need of inspiration as we continue through this challenging time. My guest today, loads of answers. She's a social profit entrepreneur who knows how to grab hold of a challenging current issue and ensure action and momentum for results towards a better world in any role she plays. I'll tell you all about her, but first, let me welcome all of you who are listening from all over the world, including Canada, USA, Mexico, Australia, UK, and so many more countries. Thank you so much for joining us. And remember to share the love with a five-star rating. And thanks, too, for your support of my beautiful best-selling book, Fearless, Girls with Dreams, Women with Vision. I know that you're finding the true, authentic stories more relevant than ever. So my guest today, smart, funny, big thinker who shares my commitment to women's economic empowerment. Who is this amazing person? Farah Mohammed. She's already had such an inspiring career, and she's just getting started. She was the CEO of the Malala Fund, an organization inspired by Malala Yousafzai, who survived an assassination attempt by the Taliban for going to school. She became the youngest person to ever receive the Nobel Peace Prize. Farah also was the founder of Girls 20, an organization which galvanizes the world's greatest resource, girls and women, and cultivates a new generation of leaders through education, entrepreneurship, and global experiences. We're going to talk about that and so much more. Welcome, Farah. Thank you so much. I'm delighted, excited, uh, invigorated to join you and uh, be a part of your fantastic, fearless podcast series. Thank you so much. (laughs) So glad. So how have you been managing through these unusual days? Is there some advice or tips to share? I know you have a love of orchids. (laughs) <laughs> I do. You know, it's an interesting time to reflect because as we, you know, we're creeping closer to the one year mark. And I have, mm-hmm. I guess, like most people, really good days, really bad days. And most of the days are somewhere in between. And so, you know, one of the things that I've been doing is, like a lot of other people, I'm committed, you know, sort of committed to ensuring that I break up my day. So I have time for the work that I'm doing. I have time for my new puppy. I have time for me. And in the time for me category, I'm making sure that I am connecting with somebody that I haven't connected with in a long time. And that has really made me stay positive, outward looking. The other thing I'm doing, and I feel like I'm a bit of a COVID cliche, but I'm going to admit it on your show. Um, I did get a puppy. I'm one of those, you know, new puppy Uh owners, cute little Stella, who's a, a cockapoo and seven months. And so that keeps me busy. Mm. I got an indoor bicycle. Like if that does not Uh, make me a Kobe cliche, I don't know what does. And I am not a baker, Janice. I don't bake because (laughs) I don't like measuring, but I've made banana bread more times than I count. So that is how I'm keeping myself sane. And I will say one other thing is when I moved to London, I moved back to Toronto. I feel like I almost 
reconnected with my family. So I'm spending a lot of time talking to my parents, my sister, my niece, my brother-in-law. So it's just been a really good time for connection. And I don't know outside of COVID if I would have been able to make the kind of time that I'm making now. Mm. So not only are you making the time, but if I'm hearing you correctly, there's sort of a rebalance in terms of what priorities look like. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So you talked about some <laughs> new things you're doing. What about, uh, so we've got the bike, we've got the dog, we've got banana bread. Are there any hobbies that you rekindled that, you know, now have you pulled out a sewing machine if that was something that you used to do? Or, um, you know, is there anything else like from your past that you're saying, hmm, I kind of want to do this now? You know, there, there isn't, and I'll tell you why. And this is, I think, exactly why I needed to rebalance. Aside from, you know, hanging out with my friends and going traveling and doing things that were really people intensive, I didn't really have any hobbies. I love to read, but I wouldn't call that a hobby. And so I haven't rekindled any hobbies because sadly, I don't think I had any before. You know, I Mm -hmm. didn't play a particular sport. I'm a huge, you know, fan of tennis. I'm a huge fan of watching live sports, that kind of stuff. And that dwindled as well. I loved to go to concerts. I loved to go to live music. So I didn't really have any hobbies, but I was always really, really active. Um, but I have been thinking a lot about puzzling. So a few uh-huh. of my friends have taken on puzzling. And I look at this puzzling with a puzzled look, truly, and think, do I have the patience? So I think I, I recently ordered a puzzle. And it's a puzzle of all the, um, pow- you've probably seen it, powerful women in the world. Um, mm-hmm. It's circular. And I think I'm going to give that a shot. So I think That's I've not, not rekindled anything, but I, again, I think I'm trying to find ways where, you know, you're, you're stuck inside your house today. It's very, very snowy um, and you are okay to be by yourself, but be doing something. I love that. So let's talk about your career. You've had so many different hats, you know, politics and leadership and all, all kinds of fascinating roles. Let's talk about reinvention and changing the direction in your career. What have you learned from the decisions that you've made around uh, taking different leadership roles and, and what's kind of the thinking behind how you make a decision to take on a new role? I'm going to start with your second question. How do you take a decision to take on a new role? I was very, very fortunate, as you know. Um, actually, first I want to point out, you know, I've only ever had female bosses. Uh, with one 24-hour exception, I worked at a landscape company, hired on a Friday by a guy called John. He had a heart attack on Saturday. He died on Sunday, and his wife took over the business on Monday. So aside from that, I've never had uh, a male boss, um, which is kind of interesting because in this day and age, with the posts that I've had, um, that's quite a statement. So how do I take on, on jobs or challenges? Um, I love to tell people that I fell into politics, actually. I was graduating from university, Queens Arts, came back from touring around Europe, uh, backpack mode, was supposed to come to uh, a job and the job was given away, 93 election, started volunteering for Patty Torsney. And that's really what kickstarted my career in politics. And I chose to go work with Patty because she was inspirational. She was young, 31, uh, won this riding. And she gave me an opportunity that I don't think anybody else would have given me. In fact, when she didn't hire me right away, I had written her a letter and said, hey, Patty, I want to tell you why you should have hired me. And she did hire me like a year later. So, you know, I make decisions uh, to take on different opportunities because they are presented, number one. Number two, because I put my hand up for them, which I would encourage all 
women and girls to do to identify yourself if you're not being identified. But mostly what has guided me is passion and curiosity. Um, I'm impatient. I've recently started calling people impatient impactivists. Um, <laughs> and so I really feel that every single one of the positions I took on from politics to working at the BON, then going to work with Belinda Stronach, um, then heading up Girls 20 was all, and then of course Malala, they were always about, can I make a difference? Number one. Okay, let's check that box first. Two, am I going to learn and am I going to lead? So can I do both? Because if you're only ever leading and you're not learning, then you're probably not the best leader you can be. And then the third part, which I, I think I learned from my parents and I think goes to the heart of me being uh, a refugee to this country is I really want to make sure that I'm giving back. So in all of my positions, the ones that I've enjoyed the most have been the ones where I really feel like I'm working in service to something or someone. And mostly, obviously, it's been uh, young women and, and women in my career. So that's really how I've made my decisions. I've always wanted to work with people who are positive and inclusive. So you've got to look at not just the job you're going to do, but who you're going to do it with and where are you going to do it. So mine have been, um, my decisions have been somewhat of a, not a straight line at all, a bit of a curvy path. And quite often because the opportunity has presented itself and I felt confident enough to take it. And that's not always easy, right? You're a very successful woman. You know that sometimes when you take decisions, they come with major risks and you have to be comfortable with that risk. So, you know, you're clearly comfortable with the risk. You're following a very clear process in terms of the steps you take to evaluate opportunities. How do you get comfortable around the notion though of reinvention? Because while the theme is the same, uh, the roles are different. Um, it's a fantastic question, which I've been asking myself a lot since November. I left the Board of Trade and am now doing some advising um, to high net worth individuals and people who want to set up businesses. And I've been thinking about the issue of, you know, maybe not reinvention, but sort of retooling, right? Making sure that the skills that I have are properly placed. I'm really comfortable with reinvention when it comes to making sure that you're reinventing at the right time or you're rebalancing at the right time. And the best way I can put that is I'm not one who can tread water. So when I feel like I'm treading water, it's really time to move. Or if I feel like I'm in a situation where um, you're constantly having to convince people that it's important to make an impact, then it's time to move on. So reinvention is a you know, I turned 50 this year. I think that's probably um, a bit of a milestone where you sort of think about what's the next 10 or 15 years look like and do I want to reinvent myself? I will share this. I feel like I'm in this really fantastic place right now where I'm saying, okay, I've done um, government, the not-for-profit. I've worked really closely with businesses negotiating tons of deals. Which one do I want to be in? And I can't tell you that I've answered that. Some days I really want to start up a new entity. Some days I want to try to get into, you know, government. And I'm not saying I'm going to run for office, but, you know, try to figure out if there's a role for me there. And I, I think that this is my year where I sort of say, okay, my next path is going to be X. And um, as long as it's working in service, then I think I'll be very, very happy. But the moment that it's not, then I think it's, again, I'll go back to the drawing board and say, what's next? time to move on. Yeah. Go to something new. So what about a time you were fearless? You've done many uh, remarkable things. Just pick one, share one with us. I think the most fearless 
thing I've done, and there are a couple things that jumped to my mind, but you said pick one. This is a moment of real pride, but real, um, you know, keeping my eyes open as well. When I was working with Malala, she had not been back to Pakistan since the attack on her. And she and her family were really, really wanting to go back home. Imagine not being able to go home for five years. And so she entrusted me with getting her family back to Pakistan safely. And I'm not going to say that that was um, a decision that was taken lightly. It was something they wanted to do in their hearts. It was something that I went there and wanted to do for her. But I was, it was a pretty fearless thing to do, right? It was working with a government that you didn't really know, going to a place you've only ever been to once before, traveling with a family and, you know, under immense, immense spotlight. And so I feel like that was something that while I didn't fear doing it, I thought it was pretty fearless. You know what I mean? I do. I mean, the, the, there's no wiggle room on that journey. Yeah, it was an emotional journey uh, for them. And when you watch that, when you watch somebody you care about go through that emotional journey and you you bear witness to that, um, it was an extraordinary moment in my life. I will never forget when we were just about to land on Pakistan ground and Lala and her father and her mother, her two brothers, it was myself and one other person, uh, the person running communications, her name was Taylor. And I remember Taylor and I discussing this and saying, you know, how do we ensure their safety? How do we ensure uh, that she is able to do everything she wants to do in that four-day trip and feel like she really had an authentic visit back home? And um, it was, again, one of the most extraordinary opportunities that somebody has ever entrusted me with. And I'm grateful for the opportunity to have been a part of Malala's journey back home. What did you learn about yourself from working with her and and these unique experiences that you had while in that role so much you know i um in in swahili there's a term it's pole pole it means slowly slowly and i learned from malala um, a certain type of calm a certain type of patience a a peace almost that we needed to work hard we needed to work smart but that we also needed to do things at the right pace, that we were working with so many different cultures and so many different countries. One size does not fit all. And I knew that from working with Girls 20. But when you amplify that and one person's name's on the door, you learn from that person how they want to do it. You follow their lead. And, you know, Malala, smart, wise, hopeful, ambitious, and caring, and was very, very you know, caring about the young woman that she met. She took time. I, I learned, I think more than anything else, the importance of taking time, really taking time to understand everything that was sitting in front of you. You know, one of my most memorable moments was we were in Iraq sitting on this dirt floor and Malala and myself, the chair of the board at the time, and these amazing young women, like Janice, really young. And they were talking to us about wanting to pursue education rather than be a child bride. And, um, you know, that trip was that. Which is so hard to even, you know, yeah. Contemplate, like, even though, you know, we know this is a reality in places in the world, but just, you know, and that's a devastating choice right there. It is a devastating choice. And, and, you know, 
the reason I'm telling you this is that you had to be present, right? You can't, you can't be somewhere else when somebody else is telling you something like that. And yes. one of the things I, I learned to be, I guess, the bottom line is I learned to be more present, mm. um, to be in that moment. And as when you're running something, when you're the head of something, um, whether it's big or small, high profile, low profile, you're always thinking about something else. I, I really do believe that's true. Your brain is multitasking. But sitting on that ground floor or being in Mexico or being in Brazil, wherever we went, sitting and talking to those girls, I learned to be really, really present and to soak in their stories. That's so powerful. And I should correct myself. It's not a choice. Um, yeah, it's <laughs> that, not a choice. That was being it's, offered. I, I, you know, yeah. that's the wrong word. But they word did choose. But you're right, in, you know, you're right in a way that they did choose to um, rally against. They did choose to, to, to fight off the tendency of giving in and saying, this is going to be my fate. But you're quite right. It isn't a choice. Many of those girls, 10 million, in fact, a year, um, sorry, 10 million over 10 years to get married at very young ages. And during my girls 20 journey, and, you know, I, I don't share this a lot, but I learned about the history of child marriage in my own family. I didn't know about it until um, we were talking about child marriage at girls 20. So then you go and you hear these young women's stories and you feel, um, you feel hurt and anguish and you feel pain, but you also feel the weight of the responsibility to do something and to not just listen, soak it in and then step away, right? You really feel like you've got the power of their stories to fuel you to do something about it. And that's, I think, what I learned during that entire journey with Malala was patience, peace, and soak it all in, be present. The only thing I'll say in regards to that is, you know, you're such a doer. So wanting, you know, when you're hearing these challenging situations, how does your goal or does deep desire for change and, and faster change, how do you hold that beside patience? It's tough. It's a really tough balance. Um, you surround yourself with people who will, do two things. One, they will hopefully share your vision and rally around the vision and the pace that you want to set. And second is they will ground you. Um, you know, I am a doer. I, I think I was, you know, I was born a month early. I've always been, <laughs> I've always been <laughs> anxious to get on with it. Uh, I think that's part of my DNA, but you have to yeah. respect, I think the, the places and the cultures that you're working with. So no matter how yes. fast I might want to go on something, if you want to change something at the grassroots level, which is the issues that I spent most of my time on, you have mm -hmm. to be willing to take the time to work with the people who are going to make the change. Because mm -hmm. Malala Yousafzai, Farah Muhammad, Janice McDonald, all of us sitting in our own spaces and places and not knowing about how it is on the ground, we're not going to be able to change it without them. Mm -hmm. So you really need to um, let go, I think, of that you know, I'm, you should never let go of the drive, never let go of the drive, but how fast you're going, you have to take your, your lead from the people that you're really trying to help because fast isn't always going to last. Yeah. For lasting change, right? Yeah. Sustainable lasting change. Yeah. When's the last time you cried, Farah? I cried last week. Mm. I cried last week. I, um, Oh, this is vulnerable, huh, Janice? Like, <laughs> mm -hmm. I, uh, for the first time in a long time, I felt really um, 
like what is going on in the world? Mm. You know, I had a moment of a friend, actually a friend had called me and we were talking about her health. And I thought to myself, you know, we have gone through our lives. We have worked really hard. We try to do right by ourselves and our parents and our family and our friends. And sometimes it's just overwhelming. And I think I had a moment of being overwhelmed and um, I did something that I'm really proud that I did. I picked up the phone and I called my sister and my mm -hmm. sister and I haven't always been close, but we are charting this new path in our relationship. And um, I would never have let people know that I felt vulnerable or that I felt alone during COVID or even isolated, but we're all feeling that. And oh, so yes. I picked up the yeah. phone and I called her and, you know, we just chatted and it was like a normal, Hey, what are you doing? And she's like, you sound sad. And I said, I feel sad. I feel sad for the world right now. I feel like things are not, they're just not where they should be. And at the same time, I think they are exactly where they should be because there's a big message in COVID. Right. Um, and then I have to tell you the next day I smiled a big smile because the next day was an operation day. <laughs> so, <laughs> and while, you know, we're not American, that, that to me was um, a moment of real bliss and happiness and sort of shows you how things that are not in your control can make you sad one day and something else that's not in your control can make you very happy the next. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing like a good old fashioned cry. There really isn't. I mean, I just ugly <laughs> cry. Sometimes I'm ugly <laughs> cry. I did ugly right. cry, but I did. I, I just felt sort of, you know, that sometimes it's just fine to just let it out. Um, yeah. one of my friends says to me, Farah, you know, I'm doing this thing called screen therapy. And I'm like, I live in a condo. I don't think I should be doing screen therapy. <laughs> like that's With a great. puppy. If you're like, yeah. yeah, exactly. If you live out <laughs> in the middle of nowhere, knock yourself out. But uh, I was like, no, no, I'm not doing screen therapy. <laughs> it sounds good. I also I... then went on and bought the puzzle right after that conversation. Just okay. so you know. <laughs> what about serendipity in your life? Has that played, played a role? It in sure how has. Things have yeah, tell me more. Sure. Yes. Okay. First of all, I'll tell you for the longest time, my password was serendipity something, right? So just oh. that's how I felt about serendipity. Anyway, nice. uh, my most serendipitous moment I will share with you just to give you an example mm -hmm. of just how much I believe in serendipity. So when I was working with Patty Torsney, she was on the Justice Committee. We were at a Neil Diamond concert. Yes. Everyone out there, I like Neil Diamond. I still like Neil Diamond. We were at a Neil Diamond concert. And, I, I, listen, I've seen him live lots of times, had right? the pleasure of meeting him. I'm, I'm a big Neil Diamond like, fan. Should we no. just jump into a sweet Caroline right now? Moment? <laughs> um, so anyway, so Patty and I are at this concert and we are invited to sit in a box, but we've also bought tickets. So we're in okay. the audience part and we're about to go up to the box. And on the right hand side, uh, just a few seats up, a few rows up, standing there, is Anne McClellan, who was the Minister of Justice at the time, and Shaughnessy Cohen, who was a member of Parliament in Windsor. And Shaughnessy, um, Shaughnessy passed away and she was my mentor. But before that, she I didn't know this at the time, but as we walked, we went over, we said hello. I had met Anne very, very quickly one day. And when I walked away, I didn't know this, but Shaughnessy apparently said, if you ever have a chance, hire that young woman. And so fast forward, I think it was you know, maybe a year and a bit. And I was thinking about leaving the Hill. Shaughnessy had, had died. Shockingly, it was not expected. She had a brain aneurysm. 
And I was having a hard time dealing with death and didn't really know what I was doing. And and then, don't you know, Anne's chief of staff calls Patty and says, you know, we're thinking of asking Farah if she wants to, what do you think of Farah coming over and, you know, working with us? And Patty says to me, like, I don't, I don't know if you know Farah, but you shouldn't be talking to me. You should be talking to her. And so he called me up and there you go, you know, fast forward then three months and there I was working with Anne Pollock. So there's one serendipitous moment. My second one was, uh, again, related to that, very much related to that, was when all of this was happening with Shaughnessy, I was going in the green bus up the hill. And as I walked into the member's door of Parliament Hill, it's on the left-hand side, it was on the left-hand side. Um, there were a lot of cameras, lots of action. I didn't know what was going on. And I ended up being the person who sort of buffered between the media and Anne Pollock. And then, and I wasn't even working with her at the time. So I think there's lots of moments of serendipity, um, you know, I think serendipity is a funny thing because you don't necessarily, um, you know, you don't realize it when it's happening, <laughs> but right. it's like hindsight, right? It's one of those things that happens. Um, and I've been blessed by it. You know, I, I think it's serendipitous that we ended up coming to Canada versus doing what a lot of my relatives did, which was to stay in Europe or stay in the UK. You know, here I am living in the best country in the world, being able to live out every single dream I've ever had. Um, and hopefully, you know, for the next 20 years of my working life, you know, until I'm 60 or 65, can do things that matter. But I was born in a country where you didn't get a chance to vote, where, um, you know, there was a genocide of its own going on, and we were lucky to escape and come here. And thankfully, that was because of Pierre Elliott Trudeau at the time, who was the prime minister and opened up. So all of that stuff to me is part of my tale. It's part of my story. It's part of my journey. And a lot of it is serendipitous. So what's an example of a lesson you've learned the hard way since you've had so much serendipity in your life? There must be one. <laughs> oh, there are a few. Um, you know, I think the hardest lessons always have to do with people. When you're in a position of leadership, you have to trust your gut. And the lesson that I learned was when I don't trust my gut, when I don't listen, take advice, and really trust my gut on the decision, then I will have made an error. And I've made really two very big uh, people errors in my life. Can you talk more about that? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I hired somebody once who I thought would be really fantastic and um, would be a real you know, partner in crime, right? And I elevated that person too fast. And again, you know, people were saying to me, she's not ready. She's not ready. She's not ready. And I felt the pressure um, to elevate her for a whole host of other reasons. And I, I should have trusted my gut because my gut said, yeah, she's not ready. And not only was she not ready and I did a disservice to her, you know, the parting wasn't great, right? Um, okay. Because when somebody is- Bad feelings all around, basically. Yeah. And so yeah. I hold that and I think to myself, Farah, it's your, because I, you know, I, I, I take it very seriously. Um, my, my, not responsibility, but my opportunity to help young women in particular, find their own path, right? I, I had Patty to do that with me. I had Anne, Jude Shamian, uh, Belinda, Malala. Like I've had such incredible women help me understand my path. I kind of feel like it's such an opportunity to do it for others. And I feel like I failed this young woman, you know? And so I, I've only made two major errors, I think, in terms of making decisions around other people's futures and paths. But you hold that dear, right? Because that's somebody's life. That's somebody's life that you've impacted. Uh, now, since then, we've we've reconnected, and it's really great. And she's gone on to do amazing things. But that was a big blip for her and for me. So I, I learned really the hard way. 
I think. What's something you've done once that you don't want to do again, Farah? Oh my goodness. Top of my list. Okay. Please yeah. keep in mind that I'm five, one and a quarter, like five feet, <laughs> one inch and a quarter. And the quarter really matters, but I will never ever climb Mount Kilimanjaro again. You do it once, you know, you can do it. You don't need to do it again. There are people who do that over and over and over again. And why won't you do it again? Because I don't want to be dirty for six days. I don't want to sleep in a tent. I'm not a good camper. I don't want to pee in the woods anymore. I uh, am done with not knowing exactly what I'm eating, but I know I'm hungry, so I'll eat it. (laughs) But most of all, I just, I remember being there. I was there with a friend of mine. It was a, um, a fundraiser I was doing for VON. And it was through the Liver Foundation. It was Don Martin. Remember Don Martin? Mm-hmm. Don Martin and his wife were putting this thing together for the Liver Foundation. And Don said to me, and he said to Anne actually over dinner, and you either do this, and it was run for a leader, or you climb Mount Kilimanjaro. And she said, and I quote, if Farah does it, I'll do it. And I said, I'm in, because we, you know, we, she'd left politics, you know, the election she had she had not returned. And I had left politics for a couple of years, but you know, I wanted to do something to challenge myself and physically, not mentally. And so I said, I'm in. And I started training three months before. You're supposed to start training six months before. And Anne couldn't do it. And so I roped my best friend into it. And I'm telling you, as much as I love that woman, her name is Mary Chantal Lepin, I do not want to sleep in a small tent with any of my friends who have not had a shower in seven days, nor do they with me. And so I will never climb Mount Kilimanjaro again. (laughs) And but by you the can way, check I, the box. I can check the yeah. box. I climbed it up and then I had to slide my way down because my legs were not long enough to go safely from one rock to the other. I'm not joking. So, you know, I sort of slid my way down a big portion of Mount Kilimanjaro and I've got, you know, I think lifelong bruises on my butt to prove it. <laughs> so <laughs> Too much such, TMI, a remar- huh? <laughs> such a remarkable career and so many amazing experiences. But if you had to give us one more remarkable thing you've witnessed or done what would it be aside from Kilimanjaro oh gosh I've got so many I feel like I've been such a a witness to so many amazing things one fun thing I'll tell you I did which I think really opened my eyes up to the power of philanthropy so I when I was working with Belinda I was invited to go on a trip with Richard Branson and nine other what we call high net worth individuals And the purpose of the trip was to introduce you to what the Virgin Unite was doing. Uh, And in this case, it was in South Africa in a very small place called Ulusaba. And um, we were with Richard and I got to know Richard really well. And what I saw was a man who cared deeply for individuals who he otherwise would never meet unless he was philanthropic in nature. And I'm going to share with you one moment. There was a moment we went to an orphanage and there were these young little kids running around barefoot and this little boy, and I have a picture of him actually in black and white, this young little boy called Prince was HIV positive and he was running around and he came to sit with us. He, I don't know, maybe he was like four or five, cutest little kid. And he sort of sat with all the adults and kind of watched us really inquisitively. And I won't forget just how kind and how caring Mr. Branson was to that young child. I will never forget the look on the faces of those little kids as all of these people came in and we were all very casually dressed. We were all just listening to the stories of the women running the orphanage and surrounded by these little kids who didn't have drinking water, 
safe drinking water unless it was brought in, things like that. I won't forget that moment because I saw, you know, somebody who's, who's very, you know, well-known media centric, um, has done really good in terms of business decisions, sit there and listen to this woman and hear her stories and then say to all of us, what are we all going to do about this? And that little boy's picture actually hangs in my hallway. I took a, a picture of him and I, I turned it into a black and white and it hangs in my hallway. And I, I do, I smile when I move past that picture every once in a while, because it does bring back a, an amazing memory. It's like how I feel every time I pass by Parliament Hill, I smile, right? Because I think about what amazing things happen. I feel the same way about the little kids that I've gotten to meet. And I could tell you thousands of stories like that of little people or young women that I've met on my journey that have inspired me. I, I feel so blessed. It evokes such a powerful feeling in me that people with everything in the world take time out to understand the plight of others. It's a theme of being really intentional with your time and, and being present. I, I think it's so powerful. And thank you, Farah, for sharing it. It's beautiful. Final question. What's your dream for women and girls in the world? My dream is that every single woman, every girl, every young woman is able to do what they want to do, not what somebody else tells them to do. That's my dream. It's been my dream for myself. It was what my parents allowed for me. It was the theme of Girls 20 and remains the theme. It's the, if you look at what Malala wants for girls, it's her theme. You know, choose your own path and be inspired to do it, be enabled to do it, have the opportunities to do it. But yeah, be able to choose your own path, make your own choices. Choosing your own path and making your own choices. What an inspiring and absolutely beautiful dream for all women and girls. You've been listening to the absolutely dazzling Farah Muhammad. Thank you so much for joining us today on the Fearless Women podcast. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. You've made me go from moments of laughter to moments of real solemnness. So you are a master and I appreciate so much the opportunity to chat with you. Thank you again, Farah. Thanks for listening. We want our community to grow. Tell your friends, follow us on Instagram and sign up for our newsletter at fearlesswomenpodcast.com to get the early scoop. Thanks again to our amazing sponsors, BDC, Lockheed Martin, and Export Development Canada. Subscribe in Apple Podcasts or in your favorite app. And if you like what you hear, give us a five-star rating. I'm Janice McDonald. Stay fearless. Thank you to Export Development Canada, the international risk experts, for your support of the Fearless Women podcast. Supporting Canadian companies of all sizes succeed on the world stage. EDC takes your worries away and helps you grow your business with confidence. When your business has no borders, neither does your potential. Find out more at edc.ca slash women in trade. Thank you to BDC, the bank devoted exclusively to entrepreneurs, for your support of the Fearless Women podcast. We love smart companies that want to amplify women's voices. For more information, go to bdc.ca slash women.